first of all, I'm very flattered to be here, and it's lovely to see everyone, especially so early in the morning. I guess it's like, uh, what time is it? It's like middle of the night for me, so <laughs> it feels especially early. Um, I don't think it's that interesting. And in my case, I mean, I, I, um, uh, I grew up in New York City, um, and even though um, I didn't have any industry, kind of explicit industry heritage or anything, my father, who was kind of a self-made guy, wasn't born in the United States, um, uh, I think was a product of that like amazing uh, film culture of the 60s and 70s. And, and so I grew up around someone who was like, you know, basically worked, you know, in a different industry by day, but was obsessed with movies and uh, was always around that, uh, you know, culture. And I remember being uh, taken to the Angelica Film Center, like to see a midnight show of like Drugstore Cowboy when I was 13, 14. Um, to go see the grifters and see do the right thing and I just got intoxicated by cinema at a certain point and then um, uh, Was you know like a lot of people in college on the East Coast in the United States and um, When ended up studying in Europe in Spain for a year as a student you mentioned that you know going to French cinema uh, Revival houses and stuff. I, I was I was studying in Spain and there was a a state uh, subsidized cinema in Madrid called the Filmoteca, where as a student I would see like three movies a day and at some point got it in my head that, you know, this could be like some kind of career path, not really knowing much about how that would work. And uh, like a lot of other people, you know, like drove out to Los Angeles and um, started working different assistant jobs in the late 90s. I did intern for Errol Morris when I was in college, which was really cool. Um, uh, the great documentarian Errol Morris. There was a, there was a like a posting in my history department uh, at my university saying like you know research intern wanted for Errol Morris documentary, and I had seen, I guess the Thin Blue Line, um, and Errol Morris was working on a film called Mr. Death uh, about a execution technology designer who was trying to make execution technology more humane. It's an interesting topic. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I did, I would like go, you know, after school and um, go to the library and get weird arcane images and stuff related to the movie. And, uh, but anyway, that was like my kind of uh, something that, these things that you're just kind of doing as you go through life. And then, yeah, moved to LA, worked different assistant jobs, worked at um, a company called Copelson Entertainment, which was a kind of very, uh, at the time, a big production company in the, in the 90s. They had done like Platoon, Seven, The Fugitive, and then we're starting to do more kind of like mid-budgeted like action movies and stuff. And uh, had a big swanky office, uh, and I was one of like 60 interns or something, and um, massive, you know, re real kind of the way it used to be organized in Hollywood, big company and a lot of overhead and a lot of just a bigger kind of uh, engine uh, at the time, and I tried to find some way that I could have some kind of currency. So I started to uh, I started to seek out um, writers who were who were um, submitting their material to screenplay competitions. Um, this is like before the internet was like you know you know you would like fax in a letter. Um, and you would like, you know, read a lot of stuff and try and find new voices. And um, I guess like in a way, when I got, I got to Plan B in 2003, 
And how did that happen, getting into Plan B? You know, I was, I was working for um, a great producing team, Richard Donner, the great director Richard Donner and Lauren Schuler Donner. Richard Donner directed, you know, great set of movies. Um, Lauren Schuler Donner, awesome producer and um, really exciting company. And then I saw that Plan B was forming um, and I saw that they were acquiring really interesting source mm. material. Um, that I couldn't quite classify. Like I didn't, this is a time I think where the business was a little bit more, the, the kind of lines were a little bit more, uh, there was more demarcation between like commercial and indie or, you know, it was like more set in some way. And then I was watching things that Plan B was doing just from afar. Uh, they bought the rights to The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon. It's like, what, how do you classify that book, you know? Um, and some other things, and and so I, I sought out um, the company and tried to like you know I guess weasel my way in there, um, and and got a, got an interview with um, with the company and and they hired me in 2003, and yeah I've been there ever since really so it's been like 14 years and. Uh, and then obviously working your way up to vice president in in a relatively quick time. Is one kind of, you know, that happened, what, five years ago, was it? I guess, I, I don't think, I think of it just more as like this long period that, yeah. that myself and, and my partner, Dee Gardner and Brad Pitt, we've just like been, you know, this like been at this place for a long time um, through a lot of different cycles and studios and different iterations of the company. But there, there was always a kind of, idea that the company could be um, a place where filmmakers or voices, author, more authorial mm. voices could have some kind of structure within which to execute their vision. And that could be in different genres, it could be different types of movies, it could be, um, we could define that authorial vision differently, it could be, it could be a journalistic vision, mm. it could be a directorial vision, it could be, um, just, but just that, that we were going to do things maybe in a somewhat counterintuitive fashion, and I think even the company's name is, reflects that in some way, even though it's it's, it's Brad Pitt's initial. But um, but Brad Gray, who co-founded the company with with Brad Pitt, and at that time Jennifer Aniston, you know, I think there was this idea that um, we were going to do things in a, in a way that wasn't necessarily um, it wasn't iterative of we're going to be like that company or we're going to do movies like those movies. I think as, as we've gotten, you know, kind of more refined in what we do, you know, I think there is like that idea still maybe carries through what we're doing. It's that you've touched on it as well, kind of it's non-genre specific filmmaking. You can't kind of, in the roster of films, you can't yeah. kind of say this is this, this or this. And in terms of obviously mentioning working with those auteurs, so obviously with Ava DuVernay, and now with Barry Jenkins and Steve McQueen, Adam McKay. And what is it, do you think, that kind of, A, how do you find those filmmakers and those scripts and develop them so that they actually become very commercially viable at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we have, because of Brad Pitt's, um, I guess, position, uh, whatever, you know, or... or um, uh, the, the place he occupies in the landscape, um, he, I think, understands that, you know, we, uh, maybe we have a chance to do things, you know, a little bit differently. And, 
you know, some of the movies that you're mentioning, you know, they, they, now it may seem that they're commercially viable, but at the time they didn't necessarily mm -hmm. seem like that. And I think we just, we just pursued things that we thought were, were interesting, I guess. And, and, you know, it came about in different ways. Like in the case of the big short, um, we had bought, well, you know, Brad Pitt had starred in and actually produced outside the company Moneyball and through that had a relationship with, with Michael Lewis, the author of, of Moneyball and the Blind Side, and we got this book, um, The Big Short, which was you know, the seemingly unadaptable book about a bunch of basically people that are trying to short the housing market. You know, what is that? How, why is that a movie? You know, these arcane ideas. And um, I remember us all saying, God, like if you could figure out a way to do this, it would be really interesting because you're basically you're used to seeing the people that pursue, uh, you know, what's good and right in the world are ne are not usually bankers and and traders and so on and so forth. So there's this like inherent moral tension in the story. We don't really know how we're going to adapt it, but we we know there's something here, and you know, we developed a script that was you know by Charles Randolph that was really well done, but you know, it didn't somehow present itself in a way where people could understand it exactly. And we get a call out of the blue, more or less, from Adam McKay, uh, who at the time wasn't, I think, someone that you would think of as the person to do that story. But because of other interactions we had had with him and reading a script he had developed about the great, the late, I don't know if great's the right word, famous, infamous um, political consultant, Lee Atwater, and, and reading some political writings that he had done, we had an idea of him that wasn't necessarily the same as like the industries exactly. So when we got that call, we're like, this is the perfect idea. Um, but again, I don't know that at the time it would have been, it didn't necessarily seem commercial. It just seemed like that's the way to go. Or it seemed, I guess like there's a, there was a vitality or a, or a path that seemed right to us, you know? Um, and something like 12 Years a Slave, which, you know, did, had this like insane um, box office performance mm -hmm. in the UK, you know, it was like outlandishly, you know, beyond what anyone could have expected, I think. Um, you know, that was a movie that started in a kind of very organic way where Steve McQueen, you know, we saw Hunger, loved the film, and we're just having a conversation. He said, um, you know, I, I think we should do it. I want to make a film about slavery. And that very organically led to a conversation which led to uh, the involvement of, of a writer, which led to this, you know, very kind of informal process that eventually led to 12 Years a Slave. So I think these things are, they, they have an odd path to them. And, and um, I think the one common thread is that maybe we don't try and, impose our idea of something on on the process like where we don't say like you know this can't work because of x or you know if this is going to work you know y and z need to happen it's kind of like uh we're there and we follow some notion of you know story and theme and whatever seems to be the like the right rhythm and flow of that process and and sometimes good things happen from that you know it sounds odd but that is more more or less how we do it and in terms of filmmakers and stories coming to you now with obviously the success of the last decade do you still search out and if you do search out how do you search out those new voices or 
for the new voices coming. Yeah. Droves. Well, I think, I think sometimes it's like, you know, there's that term discover, you mm. know, um, and like, you know, things are always there to be discovered. And, um, you know, like Moonlight in some ways is, is an example of, um, of that process. Uh, I'm maybe answering your question in a roundabout way, but, you know, Moonlight, you know, Barry Jenkins made an amazing film and they made a series of amazing short films. So the script for Moonlight, you know, existed, you know, and was part of a process that had been happening for Barry. And we happened to go to the Telluride Film Festival with 12 Years a Slave and reconnected with Barry after years of dialogue with him that had sort of, you know, at a, at a certain point waned and we hadn't... So you, you always know. knew you wanted to work with him, but you didn't know the project. Yeah, yeah. like, like has, have you guys seen Medicine for Melancholy, Barry's, Barry Jenkins' first film, debut film? It's an amazing yeah, movie. I think it's actually uh, released in the UK, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, it's available to yeah. see. <laughs> yeah, I, th it's m I wonder what the mechanism is here. I, I, Netflix, iTunes, something. It's any, Wherever it is, watch it, it's great. You know, Moonlight came through, you know, years of, years of you know, dialogue mm. that didn't, in the, in the initial instance, result in, let's do this movie together. You know, there was a, there was a gap between uh, Medicine for Melancholy, mm -hmm. our conversations, then Barry moved in, uh, a couple of times around the country, started doing different things. And then we reconnect in 2013, and he actually initially sent me a, a different script that we had some back and forth about, talked about the story, and then sent Moonlight and, you know, read this script, and it's like, wait a second, like, how can this, how can this exist mm. and not, and be a possibility for our company to get involved? And it's like... On first reading it, did it scare you, though? In the sense that, obviously, I don't, it's about everything and nothing all at the same time. It's there, again, there's no, there's no, it's not genre specific, again, it's not, you know, you can't pigeonhole, you're like, who, did you think, who's going to be the audience? I have to say, I honestly didn't. I, I thought... I had this feeling come over me of, I haven't had this experience, but people describe like if they are like looking for an apartment or something and it's like perfect. So then they're like, how could this be? Like there must be some catch, you know? <laughs> like it's like, it's just everything that you want. Um, that, that's a bad analogy. Mm. Can I take that back? That's a good <laughs> analogy. But I mean, I mean, it was so, it had so much, um, it was so unified and so complete in every, in every way that it was like, almost like, why is this, why isn't this made already? You know what I mean? Back to your thing about discovering, it's like that, that may see, you know, that was, that was there. And it was the, vit the vital work of somebody um, that just, for a combination of reasons, the fact that he hadn't made a film um, you know, in a minute, and the fact that, you know, there's certain criteria for, um, you know, what, what makes a project get snatched up, you know, instantly. Um, maybe in a different, in a horror genre, mm. you know, a film of equal quality would have just, like, already been owned by somebody or already been made. Uh, Barry's 
partner, who he's known from film school, our partner on Moonlight, Adela Romanski and Barry had gone through a whole process of getting to the point where that was the movie Barry wanted to do. I guess I feel like you never totally discover things. They just, they, they already are there, but it's like there's this whole set of other circumstances that make it the right thing. And we always watch movies and watch television and um, read novels, um, read articles. We just try and stay, um, stay humble, stay open, um, never kind of say, oh, that'll never work, you know, that, you know, there's no audience for that. It's like, n n I guess, never, never ass assigning to yourself a, a, a kind of ideology or an authority that you don't have, you know what I mean? Because culture's always shifting, it's always moving. Just try and stay attuned. And, and Brad, Brad Pitt always talks about, you know, trying to stay curious and, and, and if something moves you, it has some kind of in, internal truth. If something sticks with you, it's a sign that like you should follow it and, and, and see where it takes you. And um, Moonlight was very much like that where, where, you know, the morning after I read it, I remember being like, whoa, like what is that like, feeling that I just can't shake, you know? It, like it like, you know, in, insinuated its way into like my emotional life. And, um, and you know, all, through that process, we, we got to partner with Barry and Adela and, and be a part of the movie. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, kind of the liberal culture industry in the United States and like, and like how, you know, certain things that maybe were believed to be getting across to an audience like weren't, you know, like, like uh, there was a, there was a seeming unanimity about what was going to happen in the election inside of certain circles and it, it turned out to be other than that and I guess a couple things. One is, you know, uh, the, 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 the urgent need to tell stories, uh, deep human stories, stories about empathy, stories that connect people. Um, I think like Moonlight, we, while not intended for this purpose, uh, I think is a story about, you know, reducing the distance between oneself and, and others, you know, and I think those are stories that feel in this moment, uh, especially, you know, vital to tell and, and that have, and that will reach people because there, there is a longing for that. And I think I, I, I would like to tell more stories like that. And then I think there's this other thing, which is, you know, looking at how people are receiving uh, work. And I think sometimes people make stories with a progressive intent that maybe aren't being received that, that way by the audience. And why is that? And, and we have to look at the tropes of the stories that we tell and, and see if they, if they have the vitality that we think that they have. You know, does that make sense? I certainly don't think our company is going to be doing escapist, you know, fair. Like, I don't say it in a smug way. I just, I, I don't think we're set up to do it that way. I think we're going to, I mean, we're, we're, we have a story that we're developing about, there's a, there's a man uh, living in the United States right now who came to, who came to uh, the United States illegally as an undocumented worker who, um, named Dr. Alfredo Quinones Hinojosa, who is um, who's now um, running the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida as a brain surgeon. Um, and that's a story that I think, without ever having to announce itself, you know, there's, a, there's an epic journey there that has a lot to say about what it, what it mean, what does it mean to be an alien and 
what was his experience like and and not just getting to you know becoming going through that process but also once he had arrived in you know in his career and I'm really interested if we can get that story if we can get the right script and stuff to tell that story and I think that story could be really great to tell right now you know um, so I think we'll be doing more stories hopefully about about connecting people rather than focusing on what divides them I mean that sounds Pollyanna but I mean I think I, I think we try to um, remain nimble and not think of situations as being always you know one or another way like um, I keep going back to this idea of like kind of trying to stay out trying to not fall into ideological um, positions and then you then have a dogma that um, leaves you inflexible about an opportunity or something that presents itself. I mean, we've done films like 12 Years a Slave was a negative pickup by a studio, meaning it was developed entirely outside the studio system. It was put together through a combination of equity and foreign sales, and then only after it became clear that a domestic piece was needed, New Regency, and then through them, Fox Searchlight became involved, and that was like, that was a fantastic, uh, way to go and I the, the kind of creative um, sense of, of no boundaries and it being driven by Steve's vision uh, I think needed that ground of not of not being inside that particular system um, and then but then through, for the for the distribution marketing it proved to be really great um, I think it's hard to maintain one's independence but I think if you maybe look at the whole chessboard and, and try and see a few steps down the road, you know, you can try and, you know, give yourself the best chances. There are, there are seemingly contradictory trends, right? There is, the, there is the glut of, like, just, you know, like, how many hours of television are, like, programmed? Like, there's some crazy statistic, like, there's 15 million original series, or, you know, Netflix yesterday said, we're gonna, we made 30 this year, we're gonna make 60 next year, you know? There's so much content, which makes it harder to stand out. And yet, strangely, it means that almost the only way you can is by having like total commitment and integrity to that, that thing which you are setting out to do. I actually think you're seeing some strange mix of the avant-garde, even in highly commercial situations. Like, like a movie, I always thought like a movie like Gravity was quite, you know, it was obviously a very commercial movie and, and a blockbuster, but in some ways very avant-garde and very audacious, you know, one person alone, you know, and it's an original, it wasn't based on IP, and I think that they're, they're, they we're seeing a breakdown of these different categories um, of kind of mainstream and, and avant-garde, so I don't, like Moonlight may be an inexpensive movie about, you know, this part of the world, but I think I regard it as being as accessible a film as any film because of some internal property it has. But I think there is a pressure on things to not be generic. I think if they're generic, then they fall in this basket of whatever, and, and then they can get washed away, you know. Um, we just did a film that Bong Joon-ho, who did um, Snowpiercer, 
um, is uh, road with John Ronson, and, and we made it for Netflix. And I don't think you go into that process thinking we're going to put our stamp on Bong Joon-ho's work. I think you go into it because you know you love Bong Joon-ho's work and you're going to try and in some way contribute to the realization of his vision, in this case in a slightly different environment than he's done it before. Making it for something like Netflix, for instance, and I, uh, there's other projects of yours that have gone to Amazon and so forth, do you think about it? I wouldn't want to say in less cinematic terms, but is there a difference in the way that things are made? Yeah, like we did um, David Michaud's film War Machine, mm. uh, Bong's film uh, Okja, and James Gray's movie The Lost City of Z. Uh, sorry, War Machine and Okja are going to be with Netflix and, and um, Amazon's the domestic uh, partner, along with Bleecker Street of, of James Gray's movie. Mm. I mean, I think, for instance, James Gray's movie is as cinematic a film... Uh, as I've, as I can recall, I mean, it's it's shot on 35. It's Darius Kanji shot it. It's incredibly beautiful. I, I uh, it'll be coming out here next year. I mean, I think that the that the SVOD platforms um, are are a fount of cre of um, creative freedom, um, and so that's something that's exciting about those platforms. But I don't think there's like a, we, you know, we don't have to, it can be any, I think you just aspire to realize the film and then the platform will deliver it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we say, um, you know. We'll make it a different way. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. Is success then measured in a different way though? In terms of, obviously I know that probably, I don't, if you don't rely on an opening weekend. Yeah. But how do you look at success? Yeah, I think obviously, Netflix has a different business, mm -hmm. and um, I mean, one of the exciting things about about that platform is I feel that if you know if the film is really strong, it will find a way, and um, you know you could reach a huge audience. There's millions and millions of people, um, and in some ways, there's a there's a simplicity to just make a great movie, and that's exciting. I don't think you can do that. You know, there's certain films that um, maybe are more geared towards some kind of collective experience, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know. I think, I think maybe we felt like, in the case of, of War Machine and Okja, um, Netflix was the partner with whom the creative vision of those filmmakers, writer-directors, was most likely to be re realized. And... And who are we to say, to choose the distribution platform mm. over the vision because of a dogma that we've already decided that it can only be this or that. I, that, that that's part of the kind of, I think, you know, if you're a creative-driven company, you've got to follow that vision where it takes you, you know? You know, Selma is a film, for instance, that took a long time mm -hmm. to get made and, and seemed like it was, you know, had, had seemed like it was going to happen various times and then you know, happened through a confluence of, of different factors, David Oyelowo, Ava DuVernay, Oprah Winfrey, timing. Um, I think you just hang on to the things that you love and, and believe that they're going to happen. I think that, you know, if the story has vitality, it, like, will, it will find a way somehow, maybe not in the way you thought, maybe for less money, maybe with a different cast. Um, uh, 
but yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, I mean, there's scripts that we have now that we're like pushing up the hill um, that are finding roadblocks and they haven't found their right, their right combination, but we, we believe they will someday, sometime. I think we're conscious of that if you, if you take on too much, you, you somehow, you start to, your relationship to that starts to change maybe and you start to kind of, in some cases, you can start taking boxes and if you start taking boxes, then you're, you start to even think of things in an obligatory way or things become chore, a chore and, you, and some measure of love or affection that you feel for the thing starts to change and then, and then the world will end. <laughs> We have to end, unfortunately, okay, cool. but I just want to thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I'm really time. pleased that you came out. Um.